Welcome to Budget Watchdog, All Federal, the podcast dedicated to making sense of the budget, spending, and tax issues facing the nation. Cut through the partisan rhetoric and talking points for the facts about what's being talked about, bandied about, and pushed in Washington. Brought to you by Taxpayers for Common Sense. And now, the host of Budget Watchdog AF, TCS President Steve Ellis. Welcome to all American taxpayers seeking common sense. You've made it to the right place. For over 25 years, TCS, that's Taxpayers for Common Sense, has served as an independent, nonpartisan budget watchdog group based in Washington, D.C. We believe in fiscal policy for America that is based on facts. We believe in transparency and accountability because no matter where you are in the political spectrum, no one wants to see their tax dollars wasted. And that is sadly why so often citizens and lawmakers alike look away when deep scrutiny is what is needed. Let me put it another way. If you've got car trouble and you take it to the mechanics with specific concerns, you want to hear if they found anything else of concern while they're under the hood, right? Fixing only half the problems is a prescription for poor performance and future problems. Well, that is exactly where we, American taxpayers, are today when it comes to combating inflation. Cars up on the lift. The mechanics are working. But the view from the waiting room looks a whole lot like half the job is not getting done. So dear podcast listeners, we're going to use this episode of Budget Watchdog AF as an intervention. Well, it's about time. And with the help of my laser-focused colleagues, Wendy Jordan and Josh Sewell, TCS senior policy analysts both, we're going to deliver a plan to help battle against inflation. It won't all be swift, but it is necessary. At the Philadelphia AFL-CIO conference this week, President Biden said he's ready. So gas is up and food is up, which we're going to get down come hell or high water. But... There's other things we can do. Wendy and Josh, are you ready? I was born for this. <laughs> Hang on, Steve. I'm focusing my laser now. All right. Well, then away we go. Our hard-to-reach targets here are special interest carve-outs, unnecessary parochial protectionist and crony capitalist policies that drive up costs for consumers. Yes, we like alliteration at Taxpayers for Common Sense. Josh? The examples of federal favoritism we're about to reveal don't just hurt consumers, do they? No, sir. They also increase costs for the federal government while, at the same time, being counterproductive to actually achieving their stated policy goals. Now, eliminating counterproductive policies will take time to produce savings, but they will pay off in the long run. It also would increase opportunity and equity by reducing the power of special interests to tilt the playing field in their favor. So, Josh, I guess a good example for the listeners of how certain policies can negatively affect consumers is one I don't think I ever contemplated talking about, and that's baby formula. Explain how federal policies affected that recent shortage. Sure. So this is a real issue. Uh, There have been massive shortages in infant formula uh, in the last few months, uh, if you've been following the headlines at all. Now, let's be clear that some of this is pandemic demand related. So supply chain disruptions are a part of the issue right now. And another big issue in the baby formula market is that it's what we call fluctuating demand. So you tend to hoard uh, if you think you're not going to have baby baby formula. Uh, So there is a little bit of supply and demand issues, some pandemic issues. And as someone who has had four children themselves, I understand this quite personally. Uh, The immediate cause of the most recent problems in the baby food uh, formula market, Abbott Lab had a shutdown 
with one of their major plants in Michigan because of unsanitary conditions. So you had a tight market. You had a lot of people with pent up demand or who are very um, sensitive to supply shocks. And then you had a large plant shut down and all of a sudden some amount of baby formula disappeared from the markets. So the question is then, how would the market solve itself here? Well, in general, what happens when you don't have domestic production of something? Does anyone know? Import? Exactly. So if you can't produce it domestically, you would import it. It's supply and demand. Lower supply, greater demand. Well, it's not happening. And there's a couple of reasons why. The first is that much of our dairy policy is geared around preventing Canada, our good friends to the north, from actually exporting products to the U.S., so there's a whole complicated pre-existing tariff rate quota system on all the kinds of products that you would get from milk. So Canada is allowed to export X amount of full fat yogurt to the United States. More than that, slapped with a tariff. Ouch, that hurt. This goes across dozens and dozens and dozens of products. And what is one product it turns out that comes from dairy? Often, it also comes from soy. Baby formula. Exactly. And so what you have right now is you have Canada as a potential supplier of baby food formula, and other dairy-based products into the United States. However, the amount that they can send to the United States is restricted because of tariffs. And specifically, when the Trump administration renegotiated NAFTA, they actually made it harder for Canadian companies to produce dairy-based infant formula and send it to the United States. Essentially, what they said is they created a, a certain level that they're allowed to export. And every year, they can only increase it by 1.2% each year. Clearly, when a major plant shuts down in the United States, there's going to be more than a 1.2% increase in demand. I think I saw something of those, almost like Abbott makes like 40% of the formula in some states. Um, and there's some other limitations as well. And so th this, this renegotiation, that was the USMCA, right? That is, yeah. The USMCA is the rebranded NAFTA. Is, isn't there an issue too about how um, in certain states, people on, is it on Medicaid, can only buy formula from certain companies as well? Absolutely. So there's a program called the Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infant, and Children. And that's targeted towards infants, primarily, and uh, children who are under the five years of age and under who live at or below the poverty line and up to a certain level above that. It's a nutrition assistance program to help impoverished people buy food. But under that program, using federal dollars that are then handed to the states, the states are allowed under that program to go in what's called sole source contracting agreements. So they go with one of the large, there's basically four companies total that supply infant formula in the United States, which is in and of itself an issue of consolidation. But in these states, you can get the, the companies bid for these contracts so that they are the only provider that people who are using WIC money can purchase infant formula from. So it wouldn't matter how many companies were there. If you have a WIC voucher, you can only buy Similac or some other name brand from one of these companies. And that becomes an issue because, again, if your brand is not produced because of a supply chain issue, because of a health shutdown. That's why the Abbott Lab production facility in southern Michigan was closed was because it was unsanitary and unhealthy. It wasn't because of economics. It was because of conditions. Then you don't have anything you can buy. So that becomes an issue of, of a monopolization and creating this, this artificial lack of supply because of a federal policy that allows states to do this. Now, there is a benefit from having a social contract in that these companies are basically, there was one study that showed that on average, they are providing WIC purchased 
instrument formula at 92% less than it would cost at a wholesale level. So basically they're giving a 92% discount. They're losing a ton of money on this, but they're losing a ton of money so that they can be the only person on the, on the supermarket shelf, basically. Right. And they're protected through these tariffs as well. As a taxpayer group, I mean, we're not anti-regulatory, but there needs to be smart policies in place to ease um, some of these these uh, provisions and to deal with some of these real world consequences of these policies. So we talked a little bit about tariffs there, Josh, and there's been some discussion about easing some of President Trump's tariff binge, even on, on China. So w- what's going on there about tariffs and how does that affect inflation? If we remember back to the Trump administration, uh, they started this trade war basically with China, but inter- importantly, not just with China, with our European allies and with Canada and to a certain extent with Mexico before the USMCA was renegotiated. So there are nearly 11,000 products or items in what's known as the harmonized schedule of US tariffs on which the United States has placed extra tariffs beyond what was already there in order to depress economic activity in China, basically to help US industry and, and punish China for its unfair trade practices, as well as Canada and Mexico and the European Union, our allies as well. Yes, um, uh, the former president was quite uh, tariff happy. There's no doubt about it. And some of those President Biden can ease on his own, right? I mean, it's not an act of Congress. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of these tariffs, um, again, there are a certain amount of tariffs or tariffs and tariff levels are set by Congress, certain ones. The Trump administration tariffs, which have now been inherited and maintained for the most part by the Biden administration, were additional ones on top of those tariffs. And so they use different authorities Section 301 is one of the big ones, basically making a, quote, national security, unquote, argument that these tariffs harm national security. Frankly, it's bogus. How steel from our European allies or anything, frankly, from our European allies is a national security threat is just not true. And in the China, it's more complicated. But the point being now is that a tariff automatically makes things from another country more expensive which means the domestically produced stuff, the stuff that we do make in here in the United States, maintains a higher level as well because they don't have to compete with a lower cost rival. And at the same time, China, our European allies and others didn't just sit back and say, oh, well, we're going to just be suckers for these tariffs. They have retaliatory tariffs on our products. So everything that we export, which is more than 6,600 US products or materials uh, at its peak, I believe, are also more expensive, which raises costs for domestic producers so costs are going up here, costs are going up for stuff you import. Again, that that just adds again to inflation. And let's not forget, the United States government purchases a lot of stuff. So everything we're purchasing domestically or that we're having to import because you cannot produce it or we do not produce it here is more expensive. Got it. Got it. So these are all inflationary pressures that are um, that are driving up costs that even though they were in place before the recent rise of inflation, they could have an impact on easing inflation by reducing some of those costs. Okay, shifting gears a little bit here, Josh, but um, let's talk about sugar. Budget Watchdog AF listeners, one thing you should know is that I'm not big on sweets. In fact, the, the kids of a former colleague of ours were known to declare, Mr. Steve doesn't like sweets. Loser. But I also don't like subsidies. So Josh, why do Americans pay more for sugar than pretty much everyone else in the world? Because of the farm bill. And I'd like to point out, you brought up the farm bill first, not me. (laughs) So basically, we have a sugar policy in the United States, which is called a no-cost sugar policy because its backers claim that it doesn't cost the U.S. government any money. And sometimes that's a technicality that is true if you only look at the specific provisions in the farm bill. 
but it costs you and me a significant amount of money every year because we essentially pay twice as much as we, we would uh, in a free market for sugar. So it's a, it's a fairly complicated program, but the main gist of it is the government says, this is how much we think sugar should cost. It's 18.75 cents per pound for cane sugar, and I believe it's 24 point something cents for sugar beets, sugar made from sugar beets. The government has declared that's going to be the price of sugar. And so that's called a price floor. And so now if the price of sugar goes below that on the wholesale market, we are basically required to take all the sugar that domestic producers make because they've used their sugar as a loan. We've guaranteed it's going to get a certain price. So now lawmakers are like, man, we got to do a lot of stuff to make sure sugar prices are more expensive than they would be. So we do a lot of policies to make sugar expensive. And the three big ones are, we essentially say American sugar growers can only produce a certain amount of sugar. And so they, the USD also says, okay, in December, they look at all the numbers and say, this is how much sugar the United States is going to use next year. And this is the price we're going to pay for it. So they set a price and they set a target amount of sugar. And then they give 85% of it by law. Congress requires 85% of that allotment goes to domestic producers. 15% can be imported. It's micromanagement. And they, they micromanage it even more. And, say, and one of the ways is they do these things that say, okay, every sugar refinery in the United States can produce this amount of sugar. This other one over here can produce this amount of sugar. And then they say, okay, now that 15% that we're allowing to come in from foreign countries, each country gets a certain amount they're allowed to, to export to the United States, at which if they exceed that, they get slapped with massive tariffs that make it economically infeasible is a nice way of saying it to export sugar beyond a certain amount to the United States. And this has some, just kind of string this out. I mean, this has some other real world implications. I mean, some of these countries that are, would be importing sugar are impoverished nations like Haiti, um, where you're essentially, um, where we're, on one hand, maybe doing some foreign aid um, that wouldn't even necessarily be necessary if if we actually um, imported sugar um, or reduced these quota systems. We're propping up, you know, industries in in, in Florida uh, and in, in in the upper uh, Midwest, um, and then also why do why does Coca-Cola use high fructose corn syrup, whereas it uses sugar in Mexico? Well, that's because sugar costs a lot in the United States, and so we essentially are you know, subsidizing some of this corn production that then is, is, um, you know, basically more economically feasible because we have this high price of sugar. All right. Enough sweet talk. So you're listening to Budget Watchdog AF, and we're talking about combating inflation. And just a quick tease, this week's wastebasket that you can find at taxpayer.net is going to be talking about the SEC proposed rule dealing with the climate impacts for investors and for companies and their their liabilities. And so we're going into our comments on this proposed rule. You should check it out. It's interesting. All right, Wendy, let's bring you in. Buy America sounds patriotic, but what is that all about? We've been working on Buy America issues at TCS for a long time. And it definitely had a resurgence. The idea of buying American had a resurgence during the pandemic because there was a greater realization during the pandemic of how much we really rely on foreign manufacturing. I mean, people who've been paying attention, uh, people who work on policy issues like, you know, the three nerds on this podcast, we knew about it, but a lot of people were pretty deaf to the um, problem of foreign manufacturing of, of some major uh, products that we rely on in the United States. Uh, and at TCS, we absolutely 100% agree it's important to have American or allied sources of things like 
protective medical equipment and masks and and supercomputers. Uh, there are things that we should definitely have a U.S. manufacturer for, uh, and we should rely on U.S. manufacturers for our federal government contracts for those items. But Congress takes that buy American football, and I looked it up today. The NFL footballs are all made in Ada, Ohio, so it is literally a buy American football, and they run with it to a highly protectionist place. For instance, the Berry Amendment, which dates back to World War II, requires U.S. content, particularly uniforms and clothing, tents, flags, tarpaulins, uh, basically anything made of cloth. But the Berry Amendment also requires not just are you supposed to use U.S. cloth and assemble uniforms, military uniforms in the United States, but the buttons and the thread and the zippers and the clasps, all U.S made. Uh, and that has kept an industry in the United States that responds to those government contracts. And that is required by law, a longstanding 80-year statutory requirement for it. But Congress then, then takes that and twists it. For instance, the United States Navy was looking to replace classic peacoats with a more capable uh, type of outerwear more weather resistant, more wind resistant. And Congress said, no, 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 you're going to stick with Navy peacoats. And Steve, did you have a peacoat? Uh, does the Coast Guard issue peacoats? No, and, and it, it's not peacoats. It's a, it's called a reefer. What? Um, that they have, but it wasn't very good. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the thing to me too on this is, is that this is something that would serve the sailors better. Right. You know that that actually would be something that they would they would wear that would keep them warmer, better uh, deal with the elements. Um, I mean, we all love Cracker Jacks. Well, I don't really so much because I'm not in the sweets, you know. But just because that iconic sailor and Cracker Jack had a peacoat doesn't mean that today's modern sailor needs that. Well, honest to God, uh, Cracker Jack is like my favorite candy. So because Miss Wendy is into sweets, winner. But the Navy peacoat is produced in a particular congressional district. And so the Navy Peacoat was made under the restrictions of the Berry Amendment. The members really wanted to make sure that the Peacoat continued to be made, even though this better protective outerwear was available, also made under the restrictions of the Berry Amendment. So it, it gets twisted, the, the Buy American uh, requirements. And it went... It, in the last five or six years, we saw uh, flatware, stainless steel flatware had to be produced uh, for, for the military, had to be produced at a U.S. manufacturer. Um, the tableware, the literally the cups and saucers and plates had to be produced only in the United States. And it, we firmly believe at TCS that the best equipment is what the U.S. military deserves. And if the best equipment at the best price is produced by an ally or another country, that's what the U.S. government, what, what U.S. government employees, in particular Pentagon employees, deserve. And so we have a problem with this sort of 
nth degree of by American being forced upon, in particular, the Pentagon. Yeah, I mean, it increases the cost for taxpayers. It uh, props up industries. And so it, it has these real world issues that also help drive up um, um, prices. Right. Um, if you if you restrict the breadth of the suppliers who you can purchase things from, I mean, you know, the economist in me says this is a pretty simple supply and demand equation. You're saying fewer suppliers are eligible. It's going to drive up your costs. Inflation right there. Exactly. Exactly. So we've talked about production, but what other areas in the supply chain, like transportation or more directly shipping? Josh, tell our podcast listeners about cabotage and the Jones Act. Sure. So cabotage, something I had to look up myself when I first started working on these issues. I just like saying it. Loser. <laughs> Essentially, it's, it's, these are laws that have been on the books for a long time that restrict the, the types of vessels that are engaged in domestic transportation. And so most notably, as you said, Steve, maritime, ocean going. And so under the Jones Act, which by the way, was passed in the 1920s, which you may notice is a theme of the laws that we're talking about here. Sugar program had its beginnings in the 1930s and its modern era, basically 1938. Most of the farm bill laws are that way too. Some of the Buy America provisions uh, can go back pretty far. Uh, but so the Jones Act, it says that any shipments between U.S. ports must go on U.S. owned, U.S. flagged, U.S. crewed ships. So a U.S. company has to build the ship, own the ship, has to be flagged, basically registered in the United States, and it has to be crewed by an American crew. Sounds great in some respects. And the justification is being that the idea is you keep a maritime industry. You keep the ability to build ships and you keep the ability to pilot those ships and, and the crews to manage it in case you need it for later, both for normal commerce competition as well as in a time of war uh, to ship things around the world. Problem is this thing's been on the books for 100 years and our maritime fleet is small and dwindling year after year after year. And so what this means in reality is that you have a smaller and smaller subset of companies that benefit from the restriction that any shipping that comes in the United States, they basically have to unload it all at the port. And those foreign owned, foreign crewed vessels then have to, they can load up and leave, but they can't go to a nearby port, even if there's a demand and something more efficient. And so you end up basically increasing costs for, for producers uh, and for uh, consumers. And then you don't take advantage of potential efficiencies and reductions in costs from these large efficient shipping companies that could unload at one of the coastal ports and go up the coast to another one. And instead, we have to have a massive trucking, a massive rail system, which is has its benefits. But having that competition between rail, trucking, and coastal shipping would produce lower cost, lower maintenance costs if you had a less extensive network and, and biased it towards one particular type. Uh, and actually, frankly, would actually reduce traffic deaths. Um, there are studies that show that having this much shipping, uh, instead of doing shipping, you're putting it on, on trucks. Essentially, you increase vehicle miles, increases wear, and increases the likelihood of accidents. And so it's a really complicated issue there. But uh, frankly, basically, it comes down to a small number of people in the industry get a lot of benefit from it. And it's the status quo that just keeps going and going and going. Uh, and, it's, and it goes into all kinds of things besides just container shipping and, and large bulk shipping. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that's crazy to me about it is, is that we obviously have a shipbuilding industry in the United States. You know, we build huge warships. Um, we actually also build 
fishing vessels and crew vessels to go to rigs and such like that. Um, so that all exists. But even though this law is designed to protect this particular industry, it hasn't worked. It has failed and it has an impact, as you said, Josh, on consumers and the fact that coastwise navigation, you know, you could actually move products from New York to Baltimore or New York to, to Florida, and it would be much more efficient um, to do that bulk on water or containers on water than it is to do it by truck or to have all these various ships come in and deepen all these ports. And that actually gets to some of the other cabotage laws. You know, For instance, there's the Passenger Vessel Act, which is the reason why when you go on vacation in Alaska, you leave from Vancouver, Canada, because they can't go from two U.S. ports with passengers unless it is a U.S.-built, U.S.-owned, U.S.-crewed ship. Or you have the, the Foreign Dredge Act, which precludes foreign dredge companies, the biggest country for dredging, Belgium, um, you know, from actually coming and, and dredging our harbor. So we have a much more inefficient system that we pay as taxpayers a heck of a lot more to do. And it also increases costs um, for consumers. Isn't that right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's and there are two other things that I find crazy about it is that, again, Belgium is not a strategic threat to the United States. They're, a, they're an ally. Um, and so the idea that using their expertise would be a threat to the United States is ludicrous. And the other thing is that with the Jones Act specifically and some of these other laws that are protectionism, it's waived all the time under emergency provisions. When, it's, when there's an actual emergency, the administration, this and previous ones, can waive and has waived these provisions in order to get foreign aid to places, in order to basically get products moving faster. And so if we waive these things in emergencies, why even have them? They're not working. They're making things more expensive. And when we really need to move stuff, we waive these provisions. It seems like there's not much reason to have them. Well, and it has a huge impact on on places like Puerto Rico and Hawaii that have to have all of their goods shipped in. And so it's a, it's a it's a it's a big issue. It's one that flies under the radar, but it could have major consequences for for supply chain management, for transportation, and for consumer costs. And it's something that it's going to take legislation, but it is something that is really worth um, looking at. So. Okay, Wendy, we know that inflation isn't only affecting the U.S., but it's affecting the whole world. But the president can lead the way by reducing some of the impacts on Americans by removing or fixing some of the U.S. policies and laws that contribute to the situation. And that's what we've been talking about. But one thing that has come up in policy considerations um, in you know the pandemic and then more recently is the Defense Production Act. So what is the Defense Production Act and why do we see it as a heavy-handed tool that should be used sparingly, if at all? Well, the Defense Production Act is the younger brother of the legislation we've been talking about today. It dates back a mere 70 years to the Korean War. And the statute gives the president the power to compel private industry to prioritize contracts from the federal government. So if you're a contractor who produces only one thing, and it happens to be nuclear-powered submarines, that's not a problem for you because you only produce nuclear-powered submarines for the federal government. But if you are a contractor who has a robust commercial division, as well as a federal and state government division, then you could have a problem. So you're not building nuclear submarines, but let's say you're building, uh, you know, the easiest thing, the smallest thing to go to is microchips. Let's go to that. 
but there are many, many other things that, that we could use as an example. So if you are producing microchips, you have a commercial business and you have a government business uh, or some microchip uh, manufacturers have both a commercial and a federal government practice. So the president says, I am invoking the Defense Production Act on your particular style of microchip. And that means that every federal government contract that comes in the door at your company for that style of microchip, you have to produce every item the federal government is asking for before you can start to produce against any commercial contracts. So that's a problem if you have a robust commercial side to your business, because you have to tell your commercial customers, sorry, the federal government just handed me this order. Uh, and let's say you're in the first quarter of your, of your fiscal year and you have already blocked out uh, what months of production are going to be against government contracts, what months are going to be against commercial contracts. And the government can just hand you a contract and completely throw your plans up in the air. Well, that's an inflationary uh, factor as well, because then though the commercial customer has been squeezed out of the contract that they had at a reasonable price, they signed the contract, they must think it's a reasonable price. Now they're out of luck with the contractor that has to produce against the federal government's contract. And so, so are lots of other people who need uh, microchips. And so all of those customers are turning to contractors who don't have what's called a rated, R-A-T-E-D, a rated contract from the federal government to produce under the Defense Production Act. Uh, so costs go up for everybody else uh, when that's the case, or they can go up for everybody else when that's the case. Uh, so, you know, Defense Production Act is really never invoked for nuclear submarines or fighter jets, um, but the, uh, the most recent examples of Defense Production Act uh, invocation for products that have a commercial side to their business as well are COVID-19 tests, COVID-19 vaccines, uh, baby formula, like Josh uh, noted earlier, rare earth minerals, solar panels. Now, not all the formula that is produced and purchased under the Defense Production Act is going to go to federal government consumers. It's not all going to the commissaries and it's only gonna be purchased by military families or retiree families. Uh, it is going to a wider audience, uh, but that's not usually the case when the Defense, Defense Production Act is invoked. Yeah, and it, and it has it has its place, but it's something that seems to be people turn to it really quickly. Like, Hey, we can get the, we can make these companies make what we want. Um, Cause it's not just you're making semiconductors and you're going to now sell the semiconductors to us. It's that you're making widgets and now you're going to make something else um, that the, the government wants. And so it, it has that displacement impact. And it can also be very expensive because again, the, the, with the baby formula, it's not just that, Oh, there's some priority that you're producing it. It's actually that the Health and Human Services used Department of Defense aircraft to fly baby formula from Ireland to the United States. 
I can tell you right now, it's a lot more expensive to fly some baby formula than it is to reduce tariffs uh, and allow for bulk export from Europe or the or Canada, even closer, uh, to solve this issue in the long run. What about a U.S. flagged vessel? All right, we're hitting all the high notes here. So, way to bring it home, Josh and Wendy, and thank you for having our back. Well, there you have it, podcast listeners. We've got a battle inflation and policymakers need a better target list, and we've got one. Let's hope they're listening. This is The Frequency. Mark it on your dial. Subscribe and share and know this. Taxpayers for Common Sense has your back, America. We read the bills, monitor the earmarks, and highlight those wasteful programs that poorly spend our money and shift long-term risk to taxpayers. We'll be back with a new episode soon. I hope you'll meet us right here to learn more.